Concord might be joining us on VTAL as well as on the web. We will be starting the next four or five um, months. We'll have a focus on pediatric gastroenterology in our CHAD mini fellowship series, uh, important and common conditions that we all manage in our practices. We will see um, lectures by Drs. Edwards, Drs. Hoffley, and Dr. Lalico today will kick our series off. So welcome to all of you here or not here, and those who are on the slopes or enjoying the snow, we understand it's vacation week. Um, I want to remind people also that we, in addition to our CHAD Mini Fellowship Series, we have a CHAD uh, Mount Washington, uh, the annual Dartmouth Pediatric uh, Conference at Mount Washington on March 6th through 9th, where we will have Another focus on pediatric gastroenterology, a mini symposium um, led by folks including Bill, Bar Bill Ballesteri, who is the uh, chair of, uh, chief of pediatric gastroenterology at Cincinnati Children's. We have openings. We have space for Mount Washington on March 6th through 9th, so hope to see you there in a couple weeks. And next week, our grand rounds, we have another visiting speaker, uh, Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg in Adolescent Medicine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia will be delivering our Colin Stewart, annual Colin Stewart lectureship in general pediatrics. So we have an exciting few weeks ahead. Today we're really excited to welcome, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Neil Lalico, who is the Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology at uh, Hasbro Children's Hospital and Professor of Pediatrics at the, um, oh, what's the name? I'm going to call it Brown Medical School, but it's yep. the... Alpert, the Alpert School of Medicine, Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Dr. Lico is a um, MD and uh, graduate of New, New York Medical College and also got his bachelor's degree in Brooklyn, a New Yorker, got a PhD, so he's Dr. Dr. Lico at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. As he described this morning, he was a long time at Mount Sinai with various leadership positions, including vice chair of pediatrics, was very happy there, but was somehow was recruited to Providence back in 2002, where he has led their section um, uh, to great success over the past decade. So without further ado, Dr. Lalico is going to talk about uh, inflammatory bowel disease and adherence and lessons for all of us. Oh, I'm very happy. Go turn on the microphone, please. Oh. Your microphone. It's on. Can you? Can I be heard? Yes. Is that better, right? Yes, we can. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm delighted to be here this morning. Um, this is a lecture that. I could give, or my collaborator, Deb Lovato, who is the chief child and adolescent psychologist. So that sort of sets the tone where we're going to go with some of the issues that I'm going to discuss this morning. My objectives really are to describe the various meanings of adherence. We tend to say, oh, adherence, I'm going to use inflammatory bowel disease, my disease of uh, substantial interest to myself. But I think the, the, the principles are more generalizable, at least I hope they are. And I suspect in the coming years we're going to find that what I have to say is relevant for all of us in the room. Um, adherence issues are going to provide a potential for the treatment, and it affects us day in and day out in our practices. So first, what I want to do is tell you, give you a little overview of inflammatory bowel disease, especially for those of you who aren't familiar with it. I want to impress upon you it's a serious disease, so that if you're going to have this disease and you're an adolescent, if you're a parent of a child, I want you all to think, oh, gee, you know, I'm going to try and take my medicine. So IBD is a chronic inflammatory disease of the GI tract, other organ systems, and um, diagnosed on the basis of history and then physical exam and certain tests. It's not a test that says, okay, it's a positive strep or it's a positive IBD. Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are the two known inflammatory bowel diseases. We now are recognizing increasingly a, something somewhat in between uh, IBDU, but for our purposes, it's not critical. The incidence of this disease is increasing. This is the data from our Rhode Island study, Oscar Ocean State Clones Glycery Registry. The currently quoted data, this is uh, about the period of appear, press, um, it's from Olmstead County. And if you take a look, it appears as though the incidence of this disease is doubling over the last couple of years. Uh, last couple of decades. In pediatrics, it's probably tripling and might be quadrupling. For Crohn's, it appears to be quadrupling. For ulcerative colitis, it appears to be relatively stable, uh, but we don't have reliable data. But 
We're seeing more and more of it. There's a genetic component. That is not increasing. We're recognizing some unusual genetic syndromes in our very, very youngest patients. But clearly, the environment is accounting for the majority of the increase that we're seeing in our patients. If you take a look under the microscope at a piece of colon, you can see nice mucosa. There's a muscularis layer. When we look at an endoscope, we tend to see ulcerations. And this is the, car, the, the uh, same tissue slice. You can see all the inflammatory cells. Notice that the muscularis is intact. There's some inflammation here, but this is ulcerative colitis. It's a mucosal disease. It's the lining of the intestine. If you have inflammation there, you're almost certainly going to bleed. You're going to have other related symptoms. For Crohn's disease, same thing. But if you notice, this is much deeper, much heavier inflammation. You no longer see the, uh, there's been a breach of the muscularis layer. And you see the beginning of a fistula, of a crack here. So this is the hallmark of where, over the period of years, the Crohn's disease is expected to advance to. This is an x-ray. This is Here we have the cecum. Terminal ileum, and you see these little lines. Those are these fistula gondwana. They grow. And they cause a lot of morbidity in our patients. These can lead to abscesses anywhere inside. They can lead to abdominal wall <coughs> abscesses. This is a young man who had this big fluctuant mass in his back. There's all pus in that. This turned out not to be painful, but it was certainly strange. And you can appreciate that the disease can do that and do a lot of other damage. This was a picture, this is an x-ray from a young, 15-year-old uh, uh, young woman. Uh, you can see that this is, should be much more even. But note, there's a little bit of dye down here in her bladder. If you do look at a CAT scan, there is a gas bubble in her bladder. Help the sign of official to the bladder. I've shown this not just that this youngster did not know what was wrong, but she was urinating some particles, there was gas. She was tremendously troubled. She didn't know who to talk to. Um, it was quite a disaster until we made a diagnosis because uh, she did not die and came to see us. Our adult colleagues have published this graphic over 20 years. And basically, they tell us that the disease is inflammatory, it progresses to stricturing, and then this penetrating phase. And one of my fellows a few years ago first published, looked at 800 patients with crows in our multicenter registry. We had a little under 60. If the surgery occurs here, looking backwards, about 18 months before virtually all of the patients who came to surgery had just inflammatory disease. Uh, and it progressed to stricturing and then to penetrating disease. <coughs> this is the anus of a patient. Uh, you might appreciate this could be painful. It wasn't for this patient. At the minimum, there's some fistula, and it's a hygiene problem. Teenage boy, this comes from a teenage patient of mine who, when he came to see me, I asked, How are you? And uh, everything was fine, everything was terrific. Are you having any symptoms? What's your quality of Everything was perfect. And then we examined him, and he had gauze pads. These are his gauze, not mine. Um, and he wakes up in the morning and he puts gauze pads in his shorts, and he's off and he's living his life. I mean, he's, he's a tremendously resilient. Um, there's a literature about depression, which I won't get into, but we don't think that's more separate subjects at the time. 15 year old young lady uh, presented to us with symptoms. Uh, I mean, terribly distressed. So there's a whole spectrum of disease. Even for those who are not that sick with these dramatic symptoms, fatigue is reported by almost 90%, pain decreased appetite, even at a year, even if you do well, you still see significant incidents. So you would think, for sure, that if you have this disease, if you have these symptoms, you're going to take your medicine. If you look at this literature, you'll see some papers are written on adherence. For some reason, that's a little bit unclear to me. Some are written with non-adherence. Uh, it can be confusing because within the same manuscript, they may go back and forth in the terminology. And 13, 14, 15 years ago, they used the word compliance. I put this up for a reason. If you look at up adherence in the dictionary, these are the synonyms, antonyms. Uh, 
faithfulness, loyalty, constancy. <coughs> this loyalty, I like that one. I think as you query physicians, as you talk to them, if the patients aren't taking their medicine, they somehow another take it personally. Um, and I think that's a big problem for us. Uh, we tend, well, for our purposes, we're going to define it here. It says the extent to which patients take their medicine as prescribed. There are, we're going to talk about some of the different methodologies, and you should also be aware that it means different things to different people. Adherence for hypertension has vast implications for a population of hypertension people. If you can improve adherence 5 or 10%, you save lives in the thousands. Um, so it's a different, it's a different um, literature, certainly relevant, but it's a different meaning of adherence. Much of the, most has been written uh, in the context of heart disease, hypertension, HIV, and asthma. But we dichotomize. Adherent patients are good. Non-adherent patients are bad. There's a large and growing literature about adherence growing. And Investigators have tried very hard to quantify this, and what, but when they actually do their analyses, it comes down to yes or no. And that really fits the model of us as physicians think are good patient, bad patient. What makes somebody adhere? The literature has decided that if you take 80% of your medicines, you are adhere. There's no biological basis for making this statement. Where there is been some studies, it falls short. But unless I say something, unless I am more specific, adherence means taking 80% of your medicines. I will get more specific. But that's it's important because um, it's, it's, it's meaningless. Badia, just a year ago, published a study out of California on children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And they found that it's interesting, it's the same technology as I'm going to describe track caps, and looked at the same medicine, 6MP, or some of the medicines we looked at. For leukemia, 95% adherence was associated with an op optimal relapse rate, and 56% of their relapses they attributed to patients not taking their medicines. I did a search in preparation for this book, uh, so this was uh, one month ago, I guess. Um, if you do, if you search on PubMed for medication adherence, had about 13,000 hits. Most of the focus is on the elderly, and if you go to the literature, you're going to find the concern about uh, elderly patients taking the medicines, people in the hospital being discharged and not knowing what medicines they should take, and so forth. Children are represented with asthma, not IBD, and not any diseases that you can see. Children in IBD have uh, <laughs> so it's not a vast amount. The pharmaceutical industry is interesting. They figure that they can double their revenues if people took their medicines. It gives them an opportunity to align with obviously important public health issues, so it's win, 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 win. And they had a slightly different motivation, but you would think that they would be more um, forthcoming and trying to help us understand this thing. As I was mentioning to Keith earlier this morning, uh, I think if you go deep into the web, if you go start searching, I was able to find a very interesting proprietary um, document from one of the big international consulting firms that is really made to market their services or not adherence to industry. And uh, I have a few of the slides. What's fascinating to me, they don't reveal exactly how they come up with the numbers, but they tend to be consistent with what's in the medical literature. So look where it's consistent, I stole a few of the graphics. <laughs> Starting with this one. First filling of a prescription. This is from Capgemini Consulting. But this is completely consistent with medical literature. And it's general. I'm not talking about IBD. This is in general. Patients get a prescription. A third of them almost don't even fill it the first time. <coughs> They lose, it goes further down for the first refill. By six months, it's less than half the patients taking medicines. <clears throat> Cylindra Kane in the IMD world was had an industry grant 
There's a drug called Lyalda. There's a 5-ASA preparation that was developed so that patients only had to take it once in the morning as opposed to two, three, four times a day. Um, there is literature to suggest that more you have to take the medicine, uh, the less adherence you will have. It's not a great literature. It seems intuitively we would accept it. Uh, so they, Dr. Kane, um, really wanted to show, set out, he was supported to, um, to show the superiority of this once-a-day medication. After quite a bit of massaging of the data, they were able to say that 20% of the patients receiving Lyalda were considered persistent, filling their prescriptions one year after they were prescribed the medication. And this was twice as much as these other commonly used drugs. So that's why inflammatory bowel disease one year after the prescription is taken. And they use a very liberal definition. That means that if somebody refilled their medicine and got 30 days of the medicine, and they got the next refill 59 days later, they're considered to be persistent. Uh, that's trouble. This is their data, and this is uh, in days. This is the refill prescription rate. What this graphic doesn't show you is that they started, this time zero is actually three months after the prescription is given because a third of the patients, just like the industry data, have never filled the prescription the first time. That's the But, you know, adults take care of the kids, as you see. The World Health, I mean, these are some random uh, uh, citations that I just put in, or, or comments. The World Health Organization recognizes this as a major problem worldwide. And I'm not even addressing the issue of uh, uh, patients are taking medicines that are uh, complicated, which is a whole uh, issue. But it doesn't matter where you are in the world, what diseases you're treating. Um, the pharmaceutical industry knows tremendously poor adherence of the disease works for them. For patients to take the medicine, it doesn't matter. This is an estimate of the United States healthcare system of the costs of non-adherence. Uh, it's $300 billion is the estimate. Uh, I've seen these numbers in a couple of different places. The biggest hunk really seems to come from hospital admissions and readmissions. It's not our primary issue. But so this is an issue that has gotten people's attention. There have been estimates that have been three times as high as this, almost a trillion dollars, but so we have to substantiate that. Cap Gemini, uh, in their proprietary material, commented, put this graphic in, it was, was something designed for a dermatological, for a pharmaceutical company that manufactured some dermatological product, they did the study. But basically, the, what's interesting here, this is adherence, they ascribed adherence or lack of adherence to continued drop-off due to lack of results at this point in the curve. And then when they did their interviews, continued drop-off due to good results at that point in the curve. So it's complex. This isn't easy stuff. H.L. Uh, Macon, I love this quote, for every complex problem, there is a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. <laughs> I amended it um, slightly. I have to review this. I'm sure it applies in lots of places. Every kind, there are many solutions for the simple need and walk. In fact, much um, easier to do this. There are major predictors of poor adherence, and they're not a big surprise to anybody. Depression is a big problem, cognitive impairment, asymptomatic disease. You can read through them side effects, other beliefs. Uh, the problem is we don't know what to do about it. Um, and there are different ways of assessing adherence. Self-report, which is most of it, this represents about 120 uh, <coughs> publications on self-report. Useless. Just useless. Provider report and significant other report are pretty much in the same category. There's no good data. Chart review isn't a whole lot better. Um, these numbers reflect the number of reports that use these techniques. So most of the adherence literature are using techniques that are really not very reliable. But we can measure adherence. There are direct methods, directly <coughs> observed therapy, DOP, doc. It was used a century ago, less than 
nephrosis, if you don't get tuberculosis, you tuberculosis. We have public health nurses. If somebody wanted to avoid being in a, in a uh, sanitarium, the public health nurse went and they took their medicine right in front of the public health nurse. Um, obviously, most accurate, not foolproof, but practical. Blood levels, which we report about, we show you some data on blood levels. Biomarkers, this is intriguing. We have, it's a new technology where some people are putting a marker in the, in the pill and you can trace whether somebody actually took the pill. We're using this, and I will show you some of our data. Indirect methods, questionnaires, useless pill counts, and prescription refills. These are the two that we have used. Pill count data is should be easy, but if you're doing more than a few patients, it's very time consuming. Not at all what you would think. The only way it works is if you can, oh, that's a statement, but probably the only way it work, works well is if you can give your patients their medicine in a bottle, they bring the bottle back to you a month later or two months later, you count the pills and you give them back a bottle. And that's not practical for large studies. Prescription refill, we're looking at our data, we're still analyzing the data on this. The prescription refills, which I mentioned, um, I was sort of a little skeptical about it. No good reason, and that's we're analyzing the data, that's pretty good. These are pretty good. And that may be an inexpensive way once you have to future studies. We'll see. Um, MEMS, electronic medication monitors, precise, easily quantified. I'm going to show you a lot of data. This is what we use. They're expensive, um, but they're great. Physiologic markers, patient diaries are self-report, not very useful. Questionnaire for parents and caretakers, um, also not very useful. These MEMS caps are really I'm going to show you more data, more pictures, but this is what they look like, basically. Here's the bottle. The cap is the, has a microchip in it. So every time you screw it, and I'll, go, I'll show you a little bit more on the So again, here is this graphic I showed you. This is the data. 15 fold. If, if a patient goes from inflammatory disease to stricturing disease, there's a 15 times increase in their needing surgery. And then as they continue to advance, statistically it's 5%, but the disease is progressing, just to remind you. So we would like to think that we can tell a parent or a patient, you know, while you're still here in this early spot, take your medicines. We have some data, not the greatest data in the world, but data that we can certainly hold back the progression of this disease. What's going to happen three and five and seven years isn't clear, but there's no reason to fear it. We looked at how we treat these patients. 6-MP, thiopurine, and 5-ASA, mainstays of treatment in Crohn's disease. Because so many of our patients, 93%, are on it, we chose to monitor those two pills. Same thing is true for ulcerative colitis, the same medicines we decided to monitor. We did this in the context of what I think is where medicine is going, basically to a biobehavioral model of, of disease. I'm not going to draw on it excessively, just to say that we look very closely with our psychologist, Devin Bonham, who's our chief of uh, child and adolescent psychology. Uh, we've worked out this model. We, in the study I'm going to tell you about, we <coughs> admitted patients who were already in their biomedical registry, so we had all the biological data that we possibly want, and we had funded through NIH a behavioral health registry, so patients were in both twice the bang for the buck, and they had extensive psychological studies. The, uh, the two obviously meet at medical adherence. Whole battery of psychological testing. I'm not an expert in psychological testing, and the more I hear and admire my colleagues who deal with this, the less I will, less comfortably have been discussing it. I will skip around the edges of it. We chose four methods of measuring our patients. Uh, adherence. Uh, this is the one we're talking about, the track caps, and I will allude to some of the others. And we'll also talk about the blood levels. So here's our track cap. This has this microchip embedded in the top. We gave our patients separate bottles for the two medicines, 5-ASA and 6-MP. We define adherence here as if you open the bottle, the number of times you're supposed to open the bottle. Models, the caps come off, 
they go on a little reader, and our research assistants print it out. So this is the data as it comes off of the track cap, identification number for the uh, patient, serial number for the track cap, the date, and the time since the previous event. We write some fancy code, and it ends up looking like this. So here is a patient. We, we, we studied virtual our patients for six months. It's a lot of data, a lot of study. This is, represents one month for one patient, <clears throat> female, teenager. On the illness management scale, she responded, she strongly disagreed with the statement, sometimes I can't remember everything I'm supposed to do about my illness. She strongly agreed, I understand what I'm supposed to do to care for myself. If she took her medicine when she was supposed to, her curve would have been just a straight line. So here she took medicine once a day, here she took it the way she was supposed to twice a day, then once, zero, one. So that's, so that's 50% of the errors. Another one, yes? Another youngster, 90% of the errors. She responded, sometimes I can't remember everything I'm supposed to do about my illness. She disagreed with that. I understand what I'm supposed to do to care for my illness. She agreed with that. And she's a star. I have to tell you a little anecdote. The first time we were looking at this data, my colleagues had done a lot of work on asthma. So they were used to sort of that idea and stuff. So they, we, we, the first time I ever got to see the graph, they put up the first slide, and it was somebody with 80% of the hearings. And I think, how bad. And there's a, and they, they go, they're thinking how great that was. Eighteen <laughs> percent. <laughs> yeah, this youngster. Sometimes I can't remember everything I'm supposed to do, and I understand what I'm supposed to do to care for him. That he was neutral on I understand, and he agreed that he can't always remember. It's hard to take issue with. And another similar picture. So in all, we monitored, monitoring occurred on 16,000 plus patient days. <clears throat> Patients who were just on five, who we monitored 10,000, almost 11,000 children on five ASA, and, almost, and five and a half thousand on six FP. 7,000 only taking this medicine, 1,500 or so only taking six MP, and about 3,400 days taking both drugs. So that's the rough breakdown. Our patients, we divided them in our study. We tried to match previously diagnosed patients to newly diagnosed patients. We had about, uh, I guess, 89, maybe a couple more slides. But basically, that's about right. Um, the newly diagnosed had just been diagnosed. The previous average about two and a half years. Uh, the, the, the two groups are pretty comparable, as you can see. And the demographics were sort of very favorable. They were relatively high-functioning, upper-middle-class, well-educated, employed, and two-parent families, more so than the general population. And this occurred in the last, I guess, about five years ago, three years ago. And you know, Rhode Island is pretty far ahead by the recession, still is in. So this is, a, you know, this is a demographic that one would expect to perform better than the average population. <coughs> If I stop the talk now and say, okay, so 5A adherence is 70%, 6 MP is virtually the same number, what does that mean? That's the, that's the, the answer. 70% and 65% has no meaning about this. If we try to look at it, Crohn's, which we consider to be a more difficult disease to treat versus ulcerative colitis, uh, the basic adherence for two drugs. There's really no difference between the two drugs and between the two diseases. Females maybe were a little bit better, but not statistically better in our size sample. So gender is not a big issue. Age, come back to age. Speaking to different pediatricians, anyone who's ever dealt with an adolescent, you know where I'm going to go with this. Uh, and I'll have much better representations. This is the raw data. The, the older adolescents are dreadful. In general. Looks pretty good. This looks good, 54% and 51% for the older adolescents. Huh? It should be that. Watch what happens. 
<laughs> baseline disease, we thought, okay, well, maybe those kids who are sicker, that's PGA stands for Physician Global Assessment. Whether they were mild or moderate or severe, Whether they had more pain or less pain, disease location, I thought disease location might be a surrogate for symptoms. Certainly less slight disease in there, but probably more so far. 57 versus 60. Uh, blood, you know, seems to me that would get my attention, might influence me to take my medicines. Taking one pill versus two pills, um, that was a surprise. That didn't have that much of an effect. If you took just the five, now five ASA is a medicine in which we expect our kids to take multiple pills. Six MP is a, is a medicine where our kids are essentially all taking either one pill or a half. There are a few exceptions. We can do a partial correlation analysis of physicians' global assessment. That's, gee, this kid looks great, terrible. It's also disease activity indexes for Crohn's disease, disease activity index for um, ulcerative colitis, blood, pain, diarrhea, not significant, not significant, not significant. The child behavior checklist, which is a measure of the, basically, we're looking at symptoms that are associated with depression. The rub here, as a clinician, I said, oh, I'm a student, I mean, I'm really good, I can now. Most of the symptoms that are reported are not symptoms that we can pick up readily. So this is a checklist. It's filled out by the parent or other caretaker. And that um, had significant findings. Just this child behavior checklist and, and age were the only two things that really mattered. And here it is, age and child behavior checklist. So we published our first paper, and this came out just about uh, eight or nine months ago, I guess. And this is the data that I showed you. If you take a look at our analyst, here's 6MP, 5ASA. This represents, I'm still representing adherence as taking 80% of your medicine, which I'm not certain is enough. But among our adolescents, 85% of the 15 to 18 year olds, 85% are taking less than 80% of their medicines. For 5ASA, it's essentially the same, uh, 75 versus 80. That is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. But not the whole story. Um, over here, where the parents are, you know, at 8 to 12, we're assuming that the parents are in charge. It ain't a whole lot. I mean, it's not tremendously reassuring if you think about it. And it goes back to what I'm saying. My first thought was well, sure, you know, we tell patients, we tell parents, you know, Parents come to us, their kids are sick, they're worried. We say, oh, we know this disease, you know, it's a chronic disease, it's not going to kill your child, which is a bit of an act of faith. And, you know, you take this medicine, your child will be better, and by the way, maybe the child will get cancer. We sort of hush that up. So I thought, okay, we're, you know, we're being very open, and maybe that's what's influencing us. Maybe it is, but sure as heck isn't affecting the adolescents. So there are different reasons for this, and, it's, and I don't have any, there's no answer coming at the end of this talk, actually. Uh, now, going forward, the drug we use, we like to use these thiopurines. People are moving away from them. Perhaps that's a good idea to move away, perhaps not. But there are all these complicated metabolic pathways, and it ends up with 6TG, and that's what we measure in the patient's blood to see if they have an effective level. When we don't have the effective level, various individuals have postulated various metabolic pathways, some of which are real, and some of which are offensive. Mm. So that's the key. And it's been observed, and it appears to be a threshold, it appears to be a threshold that at around the serum level of 230 is associated with remission, so we try and be over that level. This is our curve of dose versus the level of 60. 
It's like exactly what's in the literature from others. It's no surprise here. And people have tried to figure out why is it when you're taking more medicine, adults as well as children, Actually, I think it's not literature, it's same curve. Why is it when you take more medicine, you say, oh, well, you're not doing well, take another pill, right? Um, we don't really see a, much of a difference. Well, here are the parameters. That's where we want to be. This is what the standard dose is, and that's our curve. If, however, we look at adherence, not so much as this is our blue paper that just came out a couple months ago. There we go. And lo and behold, if you adjust dose for adherence, so this is the adherence adjusted dose, a lot of the mystery disappears. <coughs> and what's fascinating, and it's just take a little tangent here, as we developed this data, and I presented it nationally at a couple of meetings, uh, you know, there were two responses. Good guy, you know, people would be like, so, oh, this is great, this is terrific. And then there was the other response, well, you don't take your medicine, you don't get a Mind you, this both have a legitimacy, but there's a whole lot of focus on, you know, what's happening here is kids aren't getting the dose, they're, getting, they're not taking the medicine, they're getting sicker, they come to us, we say, oh, gee, you know, it must be some metabolic issue. We double the dose, and then they take it, and the white count falls into it's a story that we have heard numerous times because suddenly they get, you know, it's not taking the pills. And um, there's no way to quantitate that, but it definitely has happened for many of us, and I guess hear that to my colleagues. So this is the level. Um, this is when we drew the blood level one month, here, no, we drew the blood level one month after we, this is adherence, one month prior to one drawer, and it's the same thing as we get closer. This is adherence, um, right, let me take it right out of the blood Now here's part of the problem. This is not a huge number of patients, so I'm not racing out to it. But if we take the standard 80% level, it's not a bad guess, but it's not a good guess. I mean, if our patients are taking 80%, statistically, they're not going to be in a therapeutic threshold. And it's and in our data it looks like it's more like 87 percent. I wouldn't go crazy about this number because you'll get a few hundred more patients and be a lot more confident about it. Um, but it does give you a little bit of pause to wonder who and why somebody came up with 80 percent. There's really no reason to be comfortable with that. Interestingly, a few individuals have reported that if you take the 5-ASA drug, that it has an interaction with the 6-MP drug. At various, but no one has ever shown that. That's come through in a couple of studies that's been suggested. But when we looked at it, when we controlled for 6MP adherence, so if we took patients who were all at the same level of 6MP adherence, the more adherent they were to 5ASA, uh, the better. In other words, if they were, as 5ASA adherence improves, you, you only need, even at 60% 6MP adherence, you get a therapeutic level. So this sort of uh, confirmed what others had been suggesting, that in fact taking the two medicines had an unexpected positive impact on uh, patients. And that sort of came out in the field, it was curious. Not surprising, better adherence is associated with fewer escalations in therapy. Um, I did not expect to have this relationship with the number of patients we had. I thought this was a pile of data, we pointed in the right direction. And if we control for disease activity, so these are all patients who are doing well at the start of our adherence response, so it's even more effective. Basically, we had uh, some of our physicians who knew nothing about what was going on, but couldn't show up. We had rules for when patients kind of uh, stepped up in the treatment, doses were increased in the treatment. So again, not a surprise, but here it is. You don't take your medicine, you're going to get more treatments. Don't, I can't then say you're going to cut the surgery more quickly, but it's bad. So clinical correlation suggests that there's a big potential for alterations in treatment based on really incorrect impressions of what's going on with our medicines. Uh, you can't summarize adherence <coughs> by just quoting a number. And it's complex, 
and we do ourselves and our patients a disservice when we say, oh, I'm a good patient, adhering patient. Youth with inflammatory bowel disease, we know are at risk for psychological problems. They are often taking less than the 80% of their prescribed medicines. 85% of our older adolescents are taking less <coughs> than drugs, and less, taking less than 80% of the time. Adherence is related to age, regardless of age, child emotional and behavioral functioning is very, very critical. Depressive symptoms are particularly important, but they are hard clinically for us. As good as we think we are. Uh, whether or not we use the CDC element or the Gomsomani tool, and whether that's going to be specific enough. And we believe very much in a biobehavioral approach. We have psychologists in our clinic uh, virtually all the time uh, seeing our patients patients with early aches and IBD. And it's a challenge. Now, uh, let me just say, doing okay with the time, I want to show you um, Good. So here is a 14-year-old boy with ulcerative colitis. He said, sometimes I can't remember everything I'm supposed to do about my illness, but he strongly agreed I understand so here's his course from October. He was sick in the hospital through to the following August. He was sick, really sick, IV steroids, the whole bit. And he did well. Come mid-March, he was complaining of fatigue. But he was active in sports, so we were pretty happy. And when we looked in detail at his medication history, he had left the hospital on steroids. And there was some thought maybe we tapered it too quickly. Personally, I don't like the honesty with this world. Life is not necessarily perfect. And I can believe this is my answer. Too much steroids, but perhaps too quick a tape. Uh, so he got his steroids, bumped up a little bit. Didn't make a whole lot of difference. And in the notes of the chart, his physician wrote, considering immunomodulators of biological agents. There was a big step up in treatment. And in fact, he was started on an immunomodulator, 6MP, and he felt better quickly, a few weeks afterwards. Here's a spoiler alert. It takes about three months to respond to 6MP. <laughs> so we looked at this period of time that things weren't going so well, and we tried to get some objective measures. So here's his CRP, it's elevated here, bumps up here. His albumin, serum albumin, is depressed. This is his sed rate. So, okay, stuff's happening here. That's probably accounting for what's going on. Now let's look at his track count. So, all during this period of time, he's taking nothing. And then he's taking half of the medicines, less than half of the medicines. If this was a straight line here, it would be half the medicine. Now he's not feeling so well, and he's got a little bit of religion. And he's taking more. Not a ton more, not ecstatic, so he's taking more. And now he's feeling better, and he's <coughs> stopping this. We just happened to catch this period of time during the study. So what's really happened, though? It's the, you know, the nature of this is our study. Our doctors are okay for doctors. So they have bumped him up to a medication, which he didn't need. It's a toxic medicine. You know, how toxic it is it? So we can argue when we use it, how we do it. But he got bumped up unequivocally, no doubt, no question, he got bumped up to this medicine. How many times that happens? In our field, with your patients, I would hazard against. So I think that will end it here and entertain any questions. If they're really sick, they say, make them better. They're not that sick. Their first response is, I do not want my child to have to take medicine every day. 
Can't we do this naturally? <laughs> <laughs> the internet says I can. <laughs> you know, do you think I have a good answer for you? No, I just <laughs> to let people know that this is what actually happens in the office. I'm grateful that anyone takes their medicine the way when they do. Well, and so, uh, <laughs> more of our patients admit that they don't take it. <laughs> more of our patients admit they don't actually, take it. Actually, a lot do tell me they're not taking it. Then we try to figure out what can I do, what can we, changes can we make to make it easier for you to treat your disease. The issue is trying to figure out who it's going to make a difference. Because not everybody responds to all the medicines. Right. And, you know, we have the nagging feeling that there's some kids they well better be taking these medicines and then it's going to impact them that disease progresses and whether it gets them six months or six years these are children if it gets them 20 years down the road it's in the middle of their peak years um, it isn't good but how do you convey this and we have lousy data you know what happens uh, we were talking about this last night didn't we? I have a couple of very close colleagues. One was a fellow I trained, and one was a colleague, very influential. Uh, they each had a patient who developed a deadly cancer and who died. And they each have become dramatic uh, advocates, not for the six, you know, they're stopping using, they're saying, can't use six and we're using something else, and we use methotrexate. And right now, methotrexate is being used more and more in our field. I have reservations about methotrexate. It's not being driven by science. It's being driven by emotion on our side as much as on the patient's side. So I think uh, <coughs> the challenge is to figure out how to do this. I mean, I have ideas and thoughts, but they're as untested as anybody else's. You'd like to be able to present to patients a menu of what the risks and benefits are of everything. And there's a risk and benefit to not being treated. Okay. The, the benefit is you don't incur the six and ten thousand risk of infliximab of getting a lymphoma. That's a benefit. You don't have to worry about that from that drug. But the risk is that you're going to have a much. It appears as though you're going to come to surgery a whole lot sooner. And I haven't really seen very comforting data on what the risks are of surgery. Uh, we, can, we know there's an anesthesia risk. We know there's a risk of a second and third surgery. We know there's a risk of um, decreased fecundity in the in our young girls. Um, but we don't quantify that. As we were talking uh, last night, it's quite about risk. Several years ago, I thought, okay, how can I make a contribution? I am going to so Corey Siegel, who's your adult, which runs your adult uh, has is eloquent on the subject of risk. And I heard him speak, and I thought, gee, he's an adult. Now, I can do that for pediatrics. So I stole some of his slides, and I went home. And I, and I went to the literature and I went to the books and I said, okay, I am going to learn how to express risk and I'm going to go and I'm going to give a grand round to everybody and tell me, how do you interpret risk and how do you convey it? Well, that took me, you know, I don't remember how much time I invested in that project, but it wasn't very fruitful because A, I realized that I had, you know, I had trouble with it. B, my colleagues had trouble with it. C, there was no expectation of patients But I speak to my colleagues in psychology they very eloquently point out that when you tell a parent there's a one in ten zillion chance that their child's going to get this or that, it's that they dichotomize. As far as they're concerned, it's only two things. Yes, I can get it, or no, I can't get it. Yes, my child will get it. It's a 50-50 shot. And the literature supports the idea that we have a great deal of difficulty um, understanding small risks. The more extreme a risk, the more we tend to overestimate. Don't forget for lymphoma, we estimate that the general population is about two in 10,000. So if I tell a family that the child goes on from the biological agents, that's six in 10,000. Now, the, the standard pattern is, you know, I'm saying, well, listen, you know, it's a important drug, it's great, blah, 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 and, but you must understand that there's a 14 in 10,000 risk of your child developing a life-threatening infection. And there's a six in 10,000 risk of them developing lymphoma, cancer. They go crazy as soon as kids. And I don't know that you can judge them partially. I mean, that's what we, that's uh, society. My friends and colleagues, um, they've gone crazy over it. And you know, we've all, over the course of time, had patients that we lost for one reason or another. And um, 
you know, the good news is it's rare, but because of it's it's rare, we don't really respond very well to it. Yeah, just a comment. There have been some interesting successes uh, with use of financial incentives in a variety of uh, models. And uh, one that had been worked out for substance abuse, um, we've now adapted for diabetes, uh, working with Dr. Kathy Stanger. Um, have very promising results. Uh, it's a family administered incentive program around their diabetes care. So two separate pilot trials where everyone got the treatment. Uh, there was definite positive effect, and we're now doing a randomized control trial to see if this can be sustained. But I think one of the key things that came out that I understand from the psychologists who really PI is that teenagers need the reinforcement almost immediately. Their their delay, you know, if they would take a dollar today rather than wait till the end of the week to get five. They do not delay that. And so to the extent to shape their attitudes, you have to get the reward instead of as close to the action as possible. And so literally, they have daily goals, and they get incentivized every day if they, if they meet them. And I think that's one of the things we need to think about as clinicians. No way do they act today based on the risk when they're 30. Let me just going to. Um, You'll excuse me. I'm going to go back to the whole batch of slides that I didn't want to show you because I, I want to address that for a moment. Up oh, there we go. This is also a These are different interventions. These are the relatively low impact, low cost interventions, and this is the frequency of which they're being used. Emails, text messaging, and so forth. A lot of people are doing that kind of stuff. Um, if you email 100,000 people, they'll get the colonoscopy. You don't need a big a success to affect things. Trying to get kids to take their medicine, it's a different thing. Over here, nurse educators, pharmacist programs, employee initiatives. There are employees that are paying their patients to take their medicine, or at least pick up the briefings. So these initiatives and, this, and some of these incentive items, they are expensive, so they're down here, they're not being used very much, but they are right now the most effective means, and the question is how do you marry these things to large scale problems? What about the provider end of this? We have no way, I'm a neonatologist, I don't get involved with this sort of thing, but it's a really important issue, isn't it? Uh, so you've got data that could be very helpful with understanding provider behaviors. And well, that was the first thing. First of all, it's very clear to me that this is all your problem, not me, because I have a great relationship with all my patients. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to get off of that. <laughs> I mean, I have no doubt, if you, you know, I can answer it almost in any way, but it's not data-driven. Or let me rephrase it. There's a lot of this data out there that's not of the quality that I would like. It appears as though it certainly has an impact. If you look at some of the um, uh, minority population in the United States, there's data suggesting that when they don't relate, and this is this is study, when they don't relate to the provider, they're much more likely, much less likely to follow directions. Um, I think that one can almost be intuitive. You know, if you're like me, I'm much more likely to listen to you. If you're not like me, but it's far more. I mean, if you look again, one of the slides I took out is a is a test. It's called the MMAS. That stands for a couple of fancy names. MMAS eight. It's eight questions. The patient answers it, and it will tell you whether or not they're adhering. Same popularity. We've used it in a study that we're doing. But when they did this study, and it's got a lot of problems coming they start, the first thing they found out was that two-thirds of the adult, these were adult IBD patients, two-thirds of the physicians overestimated adherence in their patients. So right off the bat, we are not able to assess adherence. If a kid comes in and their behavior problem, or they're depressed, or 
the family's dysfunctional. Yeah, I mean, you can get, you have a reasonable shot at guessing, but it's still a guess that they're going to be more likely. You know, for a hundred of those families who are very in trouble, um, you've got a good guess that, that here it stinks. Not necessarily for the individual one, but we just don't. Uh, with all all these ages groups, but especially the younger ones, what do you do to assess things like depression in the parents? The, uh, we're working on that right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, our psychologists, some of the essays, we, you know, part of the issue is this was extremely costly. It was in our age for them to be able to do 19 patients. We're looking to try and expand it and do more. Um, You've got parents, you have a select population, these are patients who are participating in a biological registry, and now also participating in a biobehavioral registry. So it's select. So I'm sure I'm missing. This is really a well-chosen, you know, if this, if the adherence data here would have been really good, you, you all would have said, well, it must be a highly select group. So, um, I think that that's a big, big, big problem. I don't think there are many centers that are better position than we are to deal with it. It's one of the attractions of my going to that center. Um, and it's part. So if we have partial hospitalization where we can put our children in to a partial program where they live at home, they come in and are eight to five, they get school, they get medical care. The parents have to participate in that. And we get some success, but I'm defining success as the kids do better. I can't define it as adherence or and, uh, and it's harder, you know, for all of the discussions about how you provide health care, um, there's not a lot of money for doing these innovations. It's out there, but you talk to, basically, here's the, you know, if you look over here, nurse, nurses, nurse interventions, so we have a senior nurse. Now, we lost the funding for the senior nurse, the hospital cut back. So I'm in a position of going to my chief financial officer and saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give me eighty dollars or $100,000 so I can hire a nurse who's going to improve adherence. And what she's going to do by doing that is we're going to knock off 10 hospitalizations a year. It's going to cost you another $500,000. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's less than wild enthusiasm on the talk, part of the chief. Talk about <laughs> but that's exactly what that's exactly where we are at this point in time. Yeah. I have to go to my hospital administrator, as I say, not, you know, and say, and and the person who we had who's most in position, you know, uh, uh, at this level, people are talking about accountable care and quality of care and quality of care, and our department administrator is being told. Cut expenses, cut expenses, and in my division, that was one of the expenses that was cut. Sure. Dr. Rizicki has the last is, word um, having done this. Is, is taking a, 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 a lower dose of medication in inflammatory bowel disease harmful in terms of when you do eventually get patients to comply and take a better dose, they do better. In infectious disease, if you take a low dose, you develop resistance. Do you develop any of that? No, we don't think so, but you probably... For the 6MP, you probably, whatever risks you are taking are probably present at the low dose. There's a risk, we don't know, but there's a methylation risk for the 6MP, and we don't know whether or not you take it once and you're at risk, or whether the risk increases over time. Um, uh, but it's a lot of medicine that's been just wasted. It, it, it's staggering, and it's so enlightening. Read the proprietary, I mean, the drug companies. You know, this is money being left on the table. They, you know, so this is a, a chance to care about us. You know, so, you know, I, so we'll see what happens. But um, maybe you get your hundred thousand from them. <laughs> well, they had a farm grant on adherence. So what they asked for. So there's a foundation, and I, um, and they had a, a, a Cresswell proposals on adherence, and what they wanted was adherence interventions. Well, if, if I, as a pediatrician, give my patients who are 12 years old an intervention and measure and they're taking they're taking 50% of the medicine, 40%, 40%. And now five years later, at 17, they're also taking the same percent. That's a tremendous event. You know, it should be going down. So I was proposing that we actually study these kids. We have this cohort. 
So my, you know, my secret, you know, this is what I leave here. This is what we'll be doing this weekend is writing this uh, for a couple of sources. But basically, we want to see what happens to this cohort as they go into adulthood. We have access to them. They're not going to move <laughs> um, we have access to almost all of them, and we like we measure their adherence, and we want to see how how they've done over time. Were the adherent patients really better? It's a straightforward study. But um, so that's the farm, you know. So I contacted the pharmaceutical foundation. I said, look, this is what we want to do. Are you interested in funding that? Ten days went by. Three days before the deadline, I got sort of a. Um, so you know, I. I'm not going to submit something that I wasn't proud of. So I didn't submit it, and yesterday, which is uh, the deadline was the beginning of February, I think, I got an email, are you going to submit anything? <laughs> so I don't know how to interpret her uh, response, so maybe it's good. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.